Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Narrative Dissonance. This is a show um, that we used to stream at 11 a.m. Pacific on Mondays, but we're now streaming at 2 p.m. Pacific. So um, might give people on the East Coast more of an opportunity to watch after work. So uh, welcome if you're new. Uh, today is Monday, what, May 16th? Um, you can watch all of our content at unsafespace.com. We're also streaming on Rumble, Utreon, Odyssey, and the old dinosaur YouTube for as long as they'll let us. You can follow us on Twitter at unsafe underscore unsafe space. And unless we get our old account back, which who knows, that might happen. Um, and this is a show that we do where we, we, I bring in a panel, a panel of guests and we ask them about uh, basically challenges to the mainstream narrative, stories that we should be uh, paying attention to, stories that we've been misled on. So we're going to start that in just a moment. But before we do, one reminder to everyone, uh, Book Club is, our next book is uh, House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielowski. Um, and that's on June 12th. And our host for this book club is Alex Maselli. So uh, last one was Gulag, Gulag Archipelago, which was excellent. And Thomas hosted that. This one is, is hosted by Alex. So uh, you got time, June 12th. I recommend you go read the book. Uh, it's a fiction book and uh, should be more fun than Gulag Archipelago, I imagine. All right. Without further ado, let me introduce the panelists for this week. First, please welcome Brian McGlinchey. Brian is an independent journalist whose work has been credited by the New York Times, Associated Press, Times of London, and others. His Substack newsletter, Stark Realities, with Brian McGlinchey, undermines official narratives, demolishes conventionalism, and exposes fundamental myths across the political spectrum. You can sign up for it at starkrealities.substack.com. Brian, welcome. Hey. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming. Um, and uh, our second panelist today is Keith Knight. Keith is a managing editor at the Libertarian Institute and host of the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. So he's leveled up. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at and capitalist a n underscore capitalist or on odyssey at keith knight don't tread on anyone keith welcome carter thank you so much for having me i appreciate your time i appreciate your time uh this is going to be fun i think um sometimes we have more conservative people on i think i mentioned to both of you got a little bit more of a libertarian slant which is great because that's up my alley so i'm very curious to see how this discussion will go um and maybe we'll just kick it off with with you, Brian, um, what do you think the most important story about which the mainstream media has misled people this past week? I think it's a story that's uh, kind of one of the big stories of our time that just keeps lingering on us. And I think it's the way that uh, it relates to the COVID pandemic. Um, and specifically, now that we're moving post-pandemic and now that the toll of all the interventions, lockdowns, shutdowns, um, are starting to grow ever, ever more evident. Um, you're seeing reporting about those consequences, but they're not t connecting the dots back to the fact that it was related to the intervention. And a great case in point uh, was this, just this last week was the uh, there's a segment on 60 Minutes where uh, they profiled an epidemic of depression and suicide attempts amongst uh, school-aged children. And, you know, they, they had a memorable profile. They focused in uh, on part of it on two girls who essentially missed their eighth grade year 
But the entire, if you go look at the transcript or go find the, the uh, segment on 60 Minutes, the entire thing is blaming it on the pandemic. You know, the pandemic caused this mental health crisis. Right. And, they, they, and they're not talking about the fact that this was caused by uh, public health decisions that were just absolutely catastrophic. Um, and it's critical because it's going forward. You know, we, we can't change what happened um, and what just happened uh, in terms of all these decisions that were made. You know, um, what we can do is, uh, number one, impose consequences on the people who impose them. Um, whether it's voting out your school board members who uh, gave the stamp to those types of things or voting out uh, mayors and governors and so forth. Um, but I think most importantly, it's, it's critical that we uh, take those lessons learned and never and take it as a never again. We're not going to go to that level of, uh, of a response for something like this ever again. Keith, do you have thoughts before I jump in? I don't want to. I want to jump in if you've got thoughts on this topic. You know, uh, I love how they call it a uh, pandemic as though uh, that simply, you know, uh, there being a virus and there being a response, it completely strips anyone of uh, actual responsibility. Sort of like when they say, well, violence erupted in this area. What do you mean? As if it's a volcano. Like it just happened. No one's at fault. Let's not point. A truck ran into a crowd of people. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. A police officer's gun shot an unarmed. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So uh, I mean, just blatant uh, propaganda there. Uh, when uh, whenever uh, they're trying to vilify vilify someone, though, they will uh, you know often use either the sex or the race of the person just to imply that something was racially motivated. It's such an evil trick, and of course, uh, leads to mass depression. Uh, but they already are excelling at that in their schooling system, uh, making kids totally depressed. So this was sort of just expediting that. Uh, The white pill about this is that more kids are homeschooled today than at any point in my lifetime. Uh, So uh, small small, uh, silver lining here. Yeah. I mean, this issue has been in the news a lot because we're about to hit, or we have hit, I guess, 1 million dead is what they've they've said. but it's hard to believe any of those numbers even because we know that they miscount, first of all. Um, so they do things like literally like if you, you die of something like a gunshot wound and they're like, oh, but he had COVID. So it's a COVID death. Right. Um, so we can't really even trust those numbers. But the other thing that I was I was wondering is I, I heard a story on NPR. Mea culpa. I listen to NPR. Um, I heard a story on NPR the other day with this expert who was talking about, I guess he was a professor from, I don't know, some Northwestern uh, university. So probably in Portland, I don't know. Um, and he, um, he had done this survey of excess deaths over the past two years uh, around the world, the whole world. He went to all the countries, and when he didn't have accurate data, they, they used some, I guess, uh, estimation tools. And he came up with a number which... Uh, I think if I did all the math right, he, it was 15 million over two years, which is about 0.1% of the population dying each year, which I think is roughly 10 or 12% more than normal. Like that, And this is just excess deaths. This isn't, uh, he didn't, they weren't like marked COVID or anything. But they were taking all those excess deaths and they were attributing them to COVID. And I thought, they may all be attributed attributed to COVID indirectly and that our politicians have 
done things which also cause death. But how many people have we heard stories of who didn't get cancer detected in time, didn't go to the hospital because of, of COVID and therefore um, increased risk of dying or have did die? How many how many people have we've seen suicide rates skyrocket? We've seen domestic abuse skyrocket. We've seen, you know, you mentioned depression. I mean, there's all of these other consequences. And it reminds me of what Ayn Rand used to talk about where it's she she would talk about the left confusing the metaphysical with the man-made as if like, oh, here's this virus. It's responsible for everything for everything. And it's conflated with the reaction to the virus, which is completely exactly. in our control. Exactly. You know, I think I think excess death is a very uh, valuable way of of uh, gauging and, and benchmarking, um, you know, country to country, uh, state to state and so forth, um, because exactly because of what you're saying. Um, and for, Excess deaths, you know, where they're where they're basically taking what was the trend of mortality, what should we have expected in that year, and then they look at the the gap there. Um, one of the things that makes that valuable is the uh, the fact that in different countries you had different testing methodologies. You know, you had ones where maybe they counted a lot more car accidents as COVID deaths, maybe some others didn't. So you you really get into apples to oranges and so forth. Um, so it's good to to take that out. But then it addresses it helps address what you were just talking about, which is the fact that okay, this was a public health issue. So let's look at the macro picture. You know, how did, how did, what was the total impact? You know, and that's a good thing about excess deaths is you don't have to necessarily attribute them all to COVID per se as an infection, but um, it can help capture all those other, uh, you know, terrible side effects from uh, lockdowns and, intervent and interventions like that. Do you think we've seen the, do you guys think we've seen the effects of these lockdowns played out yet? Or are we, it's just going to be something we feel for years to come. I don't, I don't think so at all. I think, um, for example, that 60 minute segment showing those uh, eighth grade girls, um, you know, I think one of them was hospitalized, you know, with her situation, um, just talks about the despair. Um, uh, it, it's worth noting that the, the Buffalo shooter in his manifesto, he says, I started thinking about this when we were shut down at home and I wasn't in school and I was bored out of my mind. I mean, I'm not attributing the death, the shooting to that, but it, it's worth right. noting. I mean, so I think, I think this has an enormous tail, um, uh, not just from the undiagnosed things that you know, happened last year and testing and all that kind of stuff over the past couple of years, but especially I think from a uh, mental health psychological point of view. I mean, to me, it's a little creepy to contemplate what this generation of children, and you know, probably a big span, right, of uh, what twelve years basically, or even co in college students who were affected like that, who had. Uh, had to go through that dystopian period of time where they had no, you know, had sharply reduced social contact and they're living in this weird world where everybody's masked and you're not seeing facial expressions and that type of thing. I mean, children, very young children, you know, we're seeing more uh, speech impediments and so forth because these little, little, you know, very young children uh, didn't have that visual effect, you know, of uh, seeing lips and so forth as they're learning. To, so I, I think it's a, uh, I think it's going to have a very long tail. It's going to, I think it'll be very disturbing and troubling. I think we'll see it in uh, uh, crime statistics, you know, going forward. Uh, so yeah, I think we're far from over it, unfortunately. Yeah. One of the things I'm concerned about also is I think there's this, uh, well, pre pandemic, remember there were, we all probably know someone who was the OCD slatherer of uh, <laughs> antibiotic, anti uh bacterial hand gel and like the kind of person who just you know 
it, it's fine, but kind of neurotic risk averse with respect to germs, like germaphobes. Right. I think we have an entire generation now of that. I see kids now who went through the pandemic in their formative years. And, um, well, first of all, some of them still want to wear the masks, even if they don't have to, because there's comfort there psychologically. But second of all, we've, we've, we set up this narrative that uh, the government's job is to protect us from any risk, which just, you know, seems so bizarre and anti-American. I mean, one of the one of the core, at least when I think about American values, it's this rugged individualism and this willingness to take risk and suffer the consequences on your own and and be the one in in charge of your own risk profile and, and what you're comfortable with. And that's kind of been thrown out the door where the entire narrative has been we have to keep you safe and anything that we can, anything that we need to do, as long as it's in the name of safety, uh, is justified. Yeah, well, certainly you can uh, explain that uh, rugged individualism uh, doesn't necessarily mean people doing things uh, on their own, which, of course, is why what they always they always slander it to mean Robinson Crusoe on the island doing everything by himself. But even <laughs> right. <laughs> Even the the example that I've always used is uh, uh, when you play solitaire on a computer, uh, you could think of that as doing something by yourself, but you're not even close because you didn't invent cards. You didn't invent the game. You're playing with electricity that you didn't generate on a computer you didn't manufacture uh, in a house you didn't build but probably traded for. So we're constantly working together to achieve our ends. So when the psychopath class uh, uh, run by Tony Fauci, it seems now, is telling us, well, we have to come together and do stuff. We're constantly coming together. What the lie is, is they want to coerce people. You can either cooperate voluntarily in the free market by persuasion, by acts of charity, or the violent way, which is the state saying, here are the rules. If we catch anyone out of line with our interpretation of the rules that we wrote down, well, then uh, you will either be fined or put in jail and shot if you resist. That's the disagreement, not, you know, they want people safe and we don't want people safe. Of course, get a, a an alarm system, take antibiotics, take, I, I won't say the names of the medicines because I don't know if, if they actually work. And <laughs> and you've already called YouTube a dinosaur, so I'm sure they're going to be out for you. <laughs> oh, they already the hate names. us. Uh, but uh, look, the, the reality is I, uh, I have no clue if uh, if those work. The point is my body, my choice. Here's a time where that term actually applies if people yep. want to experiment with uh, w with new things. And of course, when the government is just pimping the pharmaceutical agencies, well, this creates no incentive for them to create a good product because they don't have consumers who can say, you know what, I'm going to allocate money away from you. They already have a deal with the state to distribute these things. So we're getting worse products as a result of this government intervention. And of it, it all stems from this idea that uh, when government uh, gives you an order, you automatically uh, have to obey. Some people in government have the right to rule everyone else. They, they never make this moral justification. It's never like a Ten Commandment, thou shall not steal, thou shall not murder. So it was like, well, we uh, were told this by our experts. Therefore, we unilaterally have the right to lock people in their homes until further notice. I mean, such a dangerous precedent. It's not even a precedent. It already happened, and it was evil, and we're dealing with the effects. So, yeah, the lockdowns are just so blatantly evil. Um, has to be one of the worst things uh, domestically 
uh, that uh, the state's engaged in. Yeah. yeah. You talked about uh, that whole notion of, well, the government's here to keep us safe. And I remember once seeing a, a great speech by Judge Napolitano um, where he said, he was talking about how people say, you know, especially during campaign season and the presidential campaigns, they'll say the number one responsibility of the government is to keep the American people safe. And he just threw that right out. And he said, no, the number one responsibility is to keep us free, right? The number one, comp the yeah. number one responsibility is to protect our liberties. Um, safety is more of a, a personal responsibility, you know, overall. Yeah, They're probably the last people on earth I would trust with uh, with safety. I mean, they, they have no incentive if they if they don't keep you safe. Well, they need more money because they got to keep you safe. And if they do keep you safe, well, look at what a great job they're doing. They need more money. It, it's a totally unfalse. The fact that we can't say to them, treat them like we would treat anyone else. You know, hey, hey government, it's uh, it, it's the unsafe space show. We are so unhappy with the service lately that uh, we're not going to uh, chip in until you guys start really uh, keeping us safe while respecting our rights like we'd have anyone else do. Goodbye. D don't even wait for a response. Just hang up on the IRS. Uh, the point is, uh, the, the point is, obviously, uh, they, they don't have this incentive so that they're constantly going around bragging. Uh, Thomas Sowell said, it's this oldest scam in the book. They uh, take your money quietly and then flamboyantly give it back to you. They take your rights yes. quietly and then flamboyantly, hey, look, we're keeping you safe. At what cost? And it came at the cost of total depression and uh, total unnecessary animosity uh, between people in relationships. L literally, the, the one family member looking at another and saying, I don't want to be around you uh, unless you get injected with this thing that Jesus knows what's in it. I mean, uh, right. it's only recommended by, you know, the most evil people on the planet from Soros to Fauci <laughs> to Rachel. What the what's the CDC woman's name? Uh, that psycho to, to yeah. Nina Jankowicz, to Joe Biden, to Donald Trump. Uh, he, even uh, he had the Johnson and Johnson people on stage at his rally the other day. He could have grilled him. He could have, but didn't, sadly. So, uh, yeah, the people with the worst reputation on the planet, that's all you have to go by. I don't know what's what mRNA truly is. I probably have to take a number of courses on it, but I know the people promoting it have like uh, the reputation of like Casey Anthony does as a parent, like the worst you could possibly have. I don't, I don't even know what to compare it to. OJ as a husband, they, they and that's what you want to inject me with at the cost. You're so sure you're going to stop being friends with me for it. So, well, maybe that's actually a blessing in disguise, getting the crazies out of our life, but. Yeah, that, that's just how terrible it was. It gave absolute moron, know-nothings, the confidence to say, oh, look at me, I wear a mask and now I'm part of uh, part of the solution. No, 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 that, that's, in, that's a symbol saying, I comply with psychopathic tyrants without any reason to do so. It's nothing to brag about. Well, it was yeah. interesting to watch the uh, left half of the political spectrum go from being vilifying big pharma nonstop <laughs> to once this happens, you know, get a Pfizer tattoo. Literally, uh, yeah. I've seen those. <laughs> I mean, that sums it up right there. Yeah, and let's not forget the the, the pharmaceutical companies also got a release from liability. So you know, we libertarian right. and like the civil avenue, right? The civil suit to impose some consequences, but that's not there either. So uh, that alone, yeah. I mean, yeah. that alone, uh, th that is just so ridiculous that they can't meet like the basic tort liability 
that uh, we'd ask from like anyone else. It's it's just unreal that uh, that that people fell for this. And I love the memes that are like, any day now we'll see math deaths of mass death of uh, uh, of the unvaccinated. You'll be tripping over them on your way to work every day. Uh, I mean, th- this th- this constant scare tactic that um, that that they're using. They're going to play the same playbook out when it comes to climate change. And all you have to say is, look, I don't trust you. I think you're lying then. You're lying now. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. But you can do anything you want. You just have to follow this rule. You don't get a second of my time unless I voluntarily give it to you. And you don't get a penny out of my pocket unless you can voluntarily get it. No more using the stick to coercively impose on millions of people. Just do it voluntarily. You're so educated with all the college and all the loans you've taken out that you want us to pay off. Surely you can convince us voluntarily. Unions have trillions of dollars in reserves. You guys can uh, solve whatever problem you're going to be hysterical about next week voluntarily. And once you have that metric, uh, that's like the vast majority of the battle there. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- this is how you treat farm animals, not not humans, right? Th- this you don't you don't know you actually can't be in charge of your own decisions, and you don't really have a choice. Um, and you know they justify it all with the that one phrase that uh, covers up all manner of sin. It's, it's for the public good. So uh, yeah, you're I right. To be damned. It's called, for the uh, I wrote an article called uh, "Public Health Aired on the Side of Catastrophe." which basically take, takes that whole notion, hey, we're just erring on the side of caution, and I kind of break down why that the use of that phrase is kind of has sinister consequences in itself in terms of how I program people to think about all the interventions as erring on the side of, of caution. You know, Normally when you use that phrase, it's referring to something that has a, a very low consequence, right? Erring yep. on the side of, I erred on the side of caution and left 20 minutes early for the airport. Or I, I erred on right. the side of caution, I didn't ski that slope because that might be out of my leap. Um, it's not, oh, we're going to shut down businesses for months at a time and, and take school children out of a socialization atmosphere you know, for a year and all these types of things. Um, so You know what? Uh, I, I totally disagree with Brian. We need uh, to, stay, to uh, take the steps necessary to keep us safe. And, uh, you know, b- because of all the genocides that governments have committed in the past, we need to arrest all high-level government officials just for our own sake. <laughs> we just got to put them all in jail. Just, I mean, look, I, I just, I just want to be safe. I mean, you know, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, Genghis Khan, you know, we've seen this in the past, so I'm just playing it safe and uh, imprisoning all high-level government officials until uh, uh, un- until the situation has been stabilized. Give, and I'll let you know when that is. Give them a taste of their own <laughs> abundance of caution. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the democide might be a slightly more dangerous than COVID. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yes. You know, they were erring on the side of fascism is what they meant to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, guys, sure, we need absolute power. You know, guys, I looked into all this work and it's so complicated. Long story short, I get to control uh, hundreds of millions of people. That's what I got. <laughs> yeah. for, uh, I, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm actually going to have to keep this classified because it's so vitally important. But the, the verdict is me and my friends get more money and more power. We, we've, yes. we've really looked into it. That's uh, <laughs> what a scam. OK, wait, before we uh, before we move off of this topic, I do want to just uh pull one thread that that you brought up keith which is there's a silver lining um in in that (laughs) 
schools, specifically public schools, uh, <laughs> got caught with their pants down because suddenly parents were watching videos of what was happening in school while their kids were home learning and went, uh-uh, <laughs> and took their kids out of school. Can you can you talk about that? And, and what if you – I don't really know any numbers. I don't know if you do or not, uh, but – there's been a, a move to homeschooling. Um, do you think? Do you think some of this, the even the reaction that we've seen to parents uh, against schools on on other issues, is related to the pandemic and and stemmed from this sudden interest in what's happening in their kids' lives? I I will uh, l- let Brian start with that while I try and think. <laughs> well, I mean, I saw we just had a school board election here in uh, San Antonio, and. Um, I, I could definitely see it was a factor in the the seat that was in my my area, my uh, zone of the school district. Uh, you know, the incumbent got run out by a healthy margin, and I I attributed almost entirely to that, to to a backlash yeah. against the uh, shutdown. Um, school board elections don't always have big turnout, so the most motivated people were the people who were most irrit- you know, most angry about what what had been done. Um, it's funny, I wasn't even. It wasn't even on my radar personally, the election. And then a block walker came for the incumbent while I was out doing yard work one day. <laughs> and so uh, we struck it up and I said, well, what, what is, what's the main issue? That, what are some issues that differentiate you from the challenger? And they said, well, you know, my guy, the guy he was campaigning for, he's like, he kept our teachers safe. And it was like, okay, game over. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thanks, I'll vote now. Exactly, yeah, exactly. He, he turned out the vote all right, you know. So, um, but yeah, I think that was absolutely a factor. So I definitely think there's consequences. You saw school boards in uh, California, um, San Francisco area, um, where uh, especially campaigns led by uh, the Asian American communities against the uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco school district, one of the school districts in that area, just ran them out. I mean, a, a major turnover of uh, people there. So you're definitely seeing um, these brush fires you know, breaking out electorally uh, across the country. Yeah. Yeah. So often the uh, opportunity costs of doing things are out of sight, out of mind. So uh, parents, more or less, no matter what they do, they will have to pay the property taxes to uh, send their uh, to kids to school or so their house doesn't get confiscated and you more or less assume when the kid comes home and says would you learn nothing well they're just tired and you know being a teenager or whatever right. with uh with seeing the curriculum at home it, the uh c- critical race theory got so many people motivated to say that this is just absolutely ridiculous it's so difficult to verify economic theories pushed in school historical narratives but when it comes to the concept that your ancestors of America are inherently racist, that they are bad people inherently, and uh, basically you have nothing to really defend. This is an insult to anyone who is uh, who is American, and they saw this, and a lot of them went, you know what, this appears to be a line too far. Yeah, slavery was evil, and you know, Native American uh, removal and mass murder was absolutely cruel. But no need to negatively generalize all my ancestors who were born into a great deal of constraints we can't even imagine. Just as I would be sick if someone said, you know, um, 
uh, Asians with uh, the mass murder of Pol Pot and Genghis Khan and Chairman Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, Asians have a lot of apologizing to do. I'd slap that person across the face. Or, you know, but blacks commit tons of murder, so we need a critical race theory that everything is really their fault and the Jews' fault. This, All of these are totally evil, blaming people yep. based on accidents of birth. So you can see it right in front of your eyes how evil it is. And this, I think, is what really triggered the response to parents because it's not something tame. It's not talking about history, as Malcolm Nance likes to lie about. It's so explicitly racist in this uh, that they overplayed their hands so much uh, to vilify generally people of goodwill that uh, this is where the backfire came from and why there's more homeschooling, I think, now than ever. Yeah. And 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 on top of that, they 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 took those sins. Not only did they collectivize them. Uh, across an entire population at the time, but then they collectivized them across generations, and they told their kid, they called, told kids, "Look, you are inherently racist because of the color of your skin," which is, uh, I think, you know, as a parent myself, ticked me off if my kid was t being told that. I, that would that would anger me. Yeah, you're an oppressor. Right, yeah. right. You're an oppressor. Yeah, one or the other. You're either oppressed right. or an oppressor. Yeah. Right, which is which is obviously the critical theory dynamic for how they analyze every every single topic. There's oppressors and oppressed, and there's never any. Actually, there's getting. We can circle back to what Keith said earlier. There's never any mutual exchange through by, by equals voluntarily. It's always oppressor and oppressed. That's how they view the world. That's how they view every subject. That's the lens with which they view history uh, and current events. So, Keith, what 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 do you think uh, the mainstream media has been misleading us about in this past? week the biggest things and this applies to both of the uh links that i showed you uh in our uh, private chat here uh first yep. is this cnbc article now the date is from june 23rd 2020 but it's titled here's why economists don't expect trillions of dollars in economic stimulus to create inflation <laughs> well i'm sorry that's just they, funny <laughs> they also think yeah, first here's of why all, the moon it should not have any gravity <laughs> well, uh, it, it's like, uh, uh, I mean, this is a perfect example of shut up and listen to the experts. Uh, there are experts who are just as biased. It's the equivalent of saying, um, I want to be fair about Scientology, so I'm only going to go to the top Scientologists at the Church of Scientology to uh, to, to get my understanding of what it is. Well, uh, look, yes, they uh, have a certain area of expertise, but in order to achieve that expertise, along the way, they develop a heavy human bias in favor of the institution that they more or less belong to. Same thing with economists in uh, in this case. So uh, experts, um, I'm actually glad that, uh, that, that they called them that so people can hopefully have less uh, respect for the experts in <laughs> the future because they're always wrong. But this is uh, just a uh, more blatant example. When... Anyone advocates free market activity, uh, the common response is, well, uh, there might be monopolies in a free market, and therefore we need a state to regulate the market. If you have a monopoly, you'll get higher prices and lower quality than you otherwise would under competition. Now, uh, basically everything they say about it uh, is totally false, but let's assume that that's true, which in some cases that uh, the, it, it is. The biggest monopoly in the country is uh, the federal government granting the Federal Reserve Bank a monopoly on the nation's currency. 
I mean, all we hear about is, oh, monopolies are terrible. And we, some people having too much power. If, if, uh, you know, some people in the microphone industry, uh, exclude others, this will raise prices. Well, the money we have is worth much less than it otherwise would be. Our savings are depleted far more than they otherwise would be if the state didn't grant one group a monopoly on the currency. So this is avoiding the root cause of what is inflation. They also lie about what inflation is. They say it's an increase in price. The problem with this definition is that it doesn't distinguish between prices increasing as the result of supply and demand versus prices increasing as a causal result of an increase in the money supply. Uh, that's actually what uh, inflation is. If you go to uh, any uh, historical uh, dictionary, this is uh, the origin of the term. Governments can either tax and get more or they can print uh, to increase the amount of power and influence they have in society. So, it's tempting. Look, if I had my own magic money printing machine and had the legal monopoly on money, I can promise you I'd print just as much as they do. That's <laughs> why that's why we need to have a free market in uh, in the uh, exchange of money. So the inflation is an increase in the price of uh, goods and services as a causal result of a previous uh, increase in the money supply. But the average person who's Paul Krugman uh, does not uh, d doesn't understand this. Now, uh, the, the second uh, link that I sent you from Reason Magazine actually um, is similar because this um, is related to the shortages mm. that we see. I'm going to quote from uh, this uh, excellent article from Reason Magazine where they say imports on infant formula are subject to a tariff to tariff rate rate quotas of 17.5% after certain thresholds are met, they also say. Last year, for example, the FDA forced a recall of approximately 76,000 units of infant formula manufactured in Germany and imported into the United States. The formula wasn't a health or safety risk to babies, but merely failed to meet the FDA's labeling standards. In this case, the products were banned for not only informing parents that they contained less than one milligram of iron per 100 calories. In a separate incident last year, uh, CBD, Customs and Border Patrol, bragged in a press release about seizing 588 cases of baby formula that violated FDA regulations. So the main story here, we always hear the left talk about how, well, if you need a license to go to the polls and vote, this is voter suppression because the poorest among us won't have access to voting if you need a single driver's license. Well, when you put 100,000 regulatory hurdles in between producer and consumer, you're going to get a lot uh, – you're going to get prices that are much higher. You're going to get much fewer people who are able to afford compliance with those. So this is the cause of oligopolies, high prices, and what they later eventually will call monopolies. This is so important. Uh, the solution to this is to uh, decriminalize all capitalist acts between consenting adults. There's a I mean, there's a lot there, Keith. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that was like a fire hose of, of stuff. Let me uh, let me start by I want to underline something you said earlier. I, I won't get it. But behind me on the bookshelf behind me on the bottom shelf, I've got a two volume set uh, dictionary from night from the 1920s. And I find it so valuable uh, to look up terms as they used to be 
because now if you go to Merriam-Webster online, they'll change stuff. Um, and you will not even know that the, the, de the definition has changed. And so the only thing I'll push back a little bit on what you said is actually inflation by definition had nothing to do with price. It was merely increase in money supply. That was inflation. If prices rose as a result, fine. That was, you know, price results that rose as a result of inflation. But inflation was literally just, are you printing? You're inflating. The end. There's, it's like the money supply is air molecules in a balloon. You're putting more in. You've inflated the balloon. The end. And I think one of the reasons that they, they first took the step that you were talking about, and they said, well, it's price increase due to this. And then they just dropped the due to this part, and now it's just price increase. And the reason for that is they don't want you to know that it has anything to do with how they're mismanaging fiat currency. Um, it's it's a they're, they're, it's a shell game, and they're hiding hiding this stuff. I I heard the other the other thing I want to say before we continue on this is, is I just I want to under, underline the importance of this for everyone listening because a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear. Federal Reserve, monetary policy. People are like, oh, the guy's going to talk about numbers. And I'm like, no one. And and I think it was Clint Russell that I heard this from, but he, he had a theory like similar to the Kevin Bacon theory of the six degrees of separation. Every, you can always get to Kevin Bacon. Uh, he His theory was four degrees of separation. Every problem can get back to the Federal Reserve. Like that's everything goes back to the Federal Reserve. And, and the reason I want to say that is a lot of real, real, real world problems that people care about very much are actually related to the monopoly on money that you're bringing up, Keith. I'll shut up now and you guys can talk. <laughs> no, you're right. It's a whole host of things. War and peace. I mean, uh, the Federal Reserve is a, a great uh, enabler of uh, war by allowing the government to spend beyond its means during times of war, of uh, war, um, inequality. It's a great driver of inequality. Um, the Cantillon effect, which is that, uh, when new money is printed, those people who get it first, um, get to spend it before the price inflation, you know, starts to result from it. So they, they get an edge up on everybody else when that money is first going into circulation and, and to, uh, tell people who that is that gets it first, Brian. Okay, that's a great point. It's not you. It's uh, yeah. I mean, think. I mean, it's Northrop Grumman, right? Raytheon, uh, government contractors. All you know. It's no mistake that uh, the it, it's such an enormously wealthy one of the most enormously wealthy areas in the country is Northern Virginia. You know, it's all it's that hub around the uh, the imperial capital. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so they get that that money first and and. There's so much talk about inequality in our country off and on, and nobody ever in you know made on, on a major platform connects those dots and because they don't they don't a lot of them just have absolutely no idea. And yeah. worse, they think with modern monetary theory that hey, we're only just getting warmed up. You know, we could we could really mm -hmm. combat inequality if we just embrace the fact that the government can print as much money as it wants to, you know, <laughs> they, yep. they, they run in the opposite, complete opposite direction of, of reality. Can we, can we pause on MMT for just a second? Because it's new, it's actually new. It's not Keynesianism. It's, it's a step beyond it's Keynesianism <laughs> on shrooms. I don't know what it is. Um, but I, 
Well, there, there's a there's a concept that I actually think is intriguing about MMT, and I'm wondering if you can break it down for me a little bit because the the concept that I find intriguing is. It's based on this premise that actually we wouldn't use dollars if we weren't required to pay taxes in dollars. And therefore, um, the the I'm going to put money in quotes. The, the money is really um, it, it's really just a, a requirement that the federal government puts on on us. It's not really money. I mean, they would call it money, but but their their description is the reason they can print as much as they want is because it doesn't need to function as money. It's kind of this like you owe me thing. So it's uh, and and if they didn't require taxes in it, we, no one would there'd be no market for this at all. And the reason I find that interesting as a as a way to flip this on its head is instead of making me excited about MMT, it makes me say, yeah, you're right. Fiat currency isn't money at all. Can you talk about that for just a minute so people understand? I don't understand MMT very well either. So I mean, I have a case if you want to. You know what? I had a guy uh, from realprogressives.org come on my show and make this case. And here is the general um, uh, story that they tell to give this sort of uh, uh, analogy as to how something like a money supply is almost necessarily connected to the state. So the king comes along and sees the workers working and says, you need to give me uh, one dime, uh, uh, one coin every year. And uh, to which um, the gentleman working says, a coin, I don't use coins. Get that coin out of there. I'm not giving you anything. So the king then says, all right, well, you see all that property you have there. Um, I'm going to confiscate it unless you uh, work for uh, 10 coins a year. To which the guy says, I don't have any coins. To which the king says, well, here's how you can earn coins. I'll give you some and coins. This, yeah. <laughs> and this is the foundational scam. They have a completely – I mean for, for, forget about the, the morality of it. They're so terrified of co corporations in the free market you know, having too much sway and getting voluntary contracts. Yet one group can unilaterally issue positive obligations on hundreds of millions of strangers without ever engaging in a peaceful contract. One group gets to do this. Everyone else has to uh, b blindly obey them, give them as much as they want in the name of stimulating the economy. This is government supremacy at its roots. We're so terrified of yeah, uh, other sorts of uh, supremacies of, well, the, the business has too much power or uh, there's a patriarchy. This is where men rule, as if that's the important defining characteristic. Uh, this is the root of government supremacy. Some people have the right to do things no one else has the right to do. When they say that, oh, well, the money only exists because the government prints it in the first place. That is akin to saying um, whoever makes engines in America owns all the cars and can recall all the cars at any time because without the engines, those cars wouldn't exist. And uh, anyone who makes the copper that goes into this microphone, well, they own all the microphones because without them, there wouldn't be these microphones. And why is it the government that makes the money? Uh, why do they own the money? Why not the people who make the ink that goes on to the money? Don't they really own the money supply? Because without them, we wouldn't have the money or how about the people who make the machines at the printing press those manufacturers without them we wouldn't have a money supply therefore they and only they have the right to tax anyone at any amount for any reason to stimulate the economy this it sounds smart because it's new 
and it hasn't faced a lot of criticism, I don't focus a lot on it because one, it's totally ridiculous and doesn't get enough uh, attention on air. The sad thing is it's one of like the best ones they have just because it's so bad. Um, uh, so yeah, th there's basically nothing else to it. Is there anything I missed in the rebuttal there that, um, that, that you still think they might bring up? Well, I, so I love that explanation, but again, I, I look at that and go, okay, that's true for what the government does. Like the king comes along and says, I need these coins. Oh, here's how you can get some coins. You can make that entire case, but that entire case to me is making a case that the coins aren't money, but a catalyst for taxation and use of force. Like they're, it's like a, it's like the mafia saying, well, you need to rob these jewels over here and here's how you do it. And like, or you need to, uh, you need to get favors. They're favors. They're, they're not, it's not money. It's government favors that you can buy. Um, and so, cause money wouldn't arise that right. Money would be, I have chickens and you have rice and Brian has, I don't know, cows. And we want to do some kind of exchange. We don't want to carry chickens and cows and rice around. So, you know, we, we find something that's, fungible, divisible, durable, all the things that money is, that's a store of value. And we say, hey, let's exchange some gold coins. That's money. And we did that voluntarily without a king. When the king comes along and says, no, you need to use the one with my stamp on it. That's not money. That's, I, I just view that, that is like a, it's a, it's a cycle. It's an IOU. It's, it's a, yeah. Sorry. Say that just again. trying to justify, it's a control freak. Just trying to look for an excuse to have a, uh, uh, rules apply differently to him. Uh, I replied to someone about this on Twitter, and I just put that tweet in the chat okay. there. And I noticed the kind, virtuous gentleman out to educate us has deleted the tweet. I wasn't blocked. <laughs> he deleted the tweet. So he he, he had basically said, um, uh, th there is no right to money. Therefore, the state has the right to tax anything. Well, the obvious response to this is, okay, well, if people don't have the right to money, Anyone could steal any amount of money at any time, and the government doesn't have the necessary right to income. We could just take it at any time. It is akin to saying that uh, there is nothing built into the universe which says men can't kidnap women. Thus, every second a woman goes unkidnapped, she's enjoying a privilege which men can take away at will. There are no rights except that which the Koch brothers allow us in their edicts. This is literally no different in principle. This is what the, the government's yeah. saying. If you don't chip over, it, it's I'm not anti-taxation because I'm like really cheap and you know always wanting to, to buy you know video games instead of chipping for the general welfare. This is literally some people saying morality applies different to us. We can take your money, and if grandma. Uh, doesn't like that uh, the schools are teaching the kids to be racist. Uh, against her generation and saying that they're her entire generation's a bunch of evil idiot bigots. Well, then we take grandma's home away and we kill grandma if she resists us. That's what we're up against. And that's what the MMT idiots do not appreciate. They're literally right. saying they're uh, uh, for, for all their high and mighty uh, posturing about, well, um, it's really bad when some people have more power than others. They want the ultimate power differential with the state and the money supply, it's literal fascism. But uh, but they won't yeah. admit that. That that's my final word on this topic. Thank you for letting me go on because I, I just no no I, I I love it and and I I again I I look at it now and say I get why you want that, but it's not money. 
like <laughs> you want it because it's a right to bully. They're like bully tokens. It's like, all right, well, I, I no wonder you want to print bully tokens. I get that, but I want money, not bully tokens. So um, <laughs> let's not let's not do that. Okay, let's talk about um, actually Brian, before we move on, Brian, do you have comments on MMT and or? I mean, just the, I mean, my my basic encapsulation of it is the sense that uh, we can always print more. I mean, that's kind of what it comes right. down to. Uh, I, I, yeah. I mean, what would it look? So, I think people listening on the outside maybe are not. Well, actually, maybe I'm misconstruing what you guys want. I don't need. I don't think that the federal government needs to be involved in money at all. I'm happy to have competing monies from various like. What what do you think the right thing to do is here? What if you were money master of the universe and could wave a wand and have the Fed do whatever you wanted it to? What would the Fed do? Short answer is dissolve, right? But um, <laughs> I think first, you know, from a society point of view, I think there's just so little. When you grow up within the system where the where the government prints the money and that's the way it is, you. You don't question that, and it, it just seems so natural. And the idea that you would use anything other than that, or that there could exist anything other than that, is just beyond what people can even begin to uh, contemplate. I mean, I, I worked in financial services for a long time as a certified financial planner. I studied investments and all this kind of stuff. And you study the Fed and that kind of stuff. I was well into life before I read maybe some Ron Paul books and you know listen to what he was saying before i was like before I, even i understood wait a minute they're they just print it whenever they want to you know that's what they're doing when they're buying bonds in the open market is just they printed it i didn't know that all along that was happening and that was me you know being somebody in the financial services field uh now of course i know a whole lot better but so for the average person you know, the sky is blue and governments are in charge of money i mean the, the, there's it's kind of the, that mm goes to that level of thought. So, I mean, first it's, it's getting people to understand basically the history of money, you know, just what you talked about as a medium of exchange and how it originated. And you don't need governments to have money because it's a medium of exchange. So whatever you two voluntary parties want to agree that they're going to use in a transaction, you know, um, I, I, as far as getting us away from the federal reserve, I mean, I think, I think an audit is a great start to peel back the cover of the, on the federal reserve. So people have a grasp of what it's, what it's been up to. Um, you know, what did it do in the 2008, nine financial crisis? Where did all that money go? Um, it is so secretive about what they're buying. I mean, with the last, uh, uh, pandemic era stuff, you know, they, they keep going to new levels of what they're out there printing money to buy. I mean, they're out buying junk bonds and, they might have even you know, been dabbling in the stock market. I know the Japanese central bank, uh, they buy stocks, and it's just a, becomes this propping up mechanism that's solely focused on keeping Wall Street and you know, the the stock market at a certain level. So it's, I mean, getting to it is. Uh, I think it starts with an audit that helps scandalize <laughs> the Federal Reserve and and get it more in the public awareness. Uh, uh, and but then tra transitioning to uh, tolerating, you know, competing currencies, whatever those might be. I mean, I, I, I'm a, a Bitcoin skeptic. I love the concept of Bitcoin. I love that it is a competing currency. I love that it's being used outside, you know, 
the realm of government and so forth. So I love a lot about it. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily true money, you know, from, from my person mm-hmm. perspective and so forth. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but getting towards competing currencies, maybe that might be it. That might not be it, but uh, it's a great trend. I think even just to start dabbling into crypto, you know, if there's some sort of crypto that had something more substantial behind it, I'd, I'd be more enthusiastic. I, I totally will say, agree. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. By the way, I do, I do have crypto and I play in crypto and I, and, but I also am a long-term kind of a little bit skeptical. I'm not like Peter Schiff on, on crypto, but I'm a little bit like, uh, <laughs> I don't know that, you know, I, but I, I will say Bitcoin's already won a psychological war and that is prior to Bitcoin, no ordinary person would know what I meant if I said fiat. Right. And mm-hmm. after Bitcoin, a bunch of 20 somethings run around, speak the language of fiat. They know what fiat is. Yeah. And I, I, there's a psychological victory there. Enormous. Um, uh, it's because it's a loss of respect for the Federal Reserve, um, which I think is is super important. Can you actually one more thing? Before, maybe there's going to be more than one because this is such a great topic. <laughs> Can you guys talk about, um, you know, we've talked about printing money and inflation and OK, the first the people that get to spend it first uh, get the value of it. Can you talk about how inflation is a regressive tax of sorts? Um, because I think a lot of people on the left, um, they they dress themselves up in a lot of their ideas and this idea that they care for the most downtrodden and hard hit and poorest among us, while simultaneously wanting trillions and trillions of dollars to be printed. Yeah, uh, loosely when, uh, as Brian correctly said earlier, who gets this new money? Well, government uh, contractors. Who is hurt most? Well, people on fixed incomes, what you could say. So this would be anyone who is uh, collecting pensions or receiving Social Security, Uh, something that I love the idea of. All I ask is that we make it voluntary and let people opt out. So if you have a working job where you're engaged in sales and you get commissions, well, an increase in the rise of prices, uh, you will be able to more or less compensate for, assuming you're increasing your skills and you're able to demand a higher wage because businesses are reinvesting. Capital investment allows workers to be more productive. More productive workers are able to demand a higher wage. This increases the likelihood. It's not uh, certainly uh, anything from a guarantee. It increases the likelihood you'll be able to hedge yourself against something like inflation. But if I'm just getting, if my understanding is I get, uh, my agreement rather, is I get $1,000 a month or something, and then we see a drastic increase in prices and more dollars exist, well, then my $1,000, even though it was a small percentage of the economy before, is now even a smaller percentage. So this amount of money allows me to buy even less than I did before. And simply when prices increase as a result of money printing, well, people that have the smallest amount of income will be hurt uh, more than people that have uh, large assets that you could sell off that are already adjusting for inflation. Uh, the uh, price of housing rises, well, a lot of uh, people who own their house who are not exactly the poorest among us, well, they'll be able to make that adjustment when they eventually sell their house. Or if stock prices increase, they'll be able to do that 
but but people with fewer skills that have less leverage are not going to be able to adjust as easily as people with more skills or uh, who are diversified in assets. So yeah, uh, look if you're uh, if you're against uh, the, the downtrodden uh, being exploited and manipulated. Uh, this can brush away decades of savings within a, a couple rounds of quantitative easing or uh, money printing. It's really bad. Yeah, inflation yeah. is a tax that everyone pays, but nobody votes for. You know that's why it's so popular <laughs> with legislators, right? They don't have to be on the record of voting for anything. Um, it's just right. that uh, by uh, passively allowing this scheme to continue on with the Federal Reserve, um, they don't have to be on the record of increasing costs for people when i mentioned when we we're talking earlier about who benefits from that cantalon effect first of course i left out goldman sachs and company uh, and yeah. <laughs> because, yes you know the federal reserve is not allowed to uh uh when, when they when when we talk about the federal reserve printing money and so forth i mean the way that that happens is they issue bonds wall street buys those treasury bonds and then the Federal Reserve goes right back out and buys them from Goldman Sachs. The Federal Reserve is not allowed to buy debt by law directly from the Treasury. So right. what you have is what the IRS would call a sham transaction. I mean, you've got a gold. Oh, so, Goldman Sachs, like, oh, I got it. You know, or it's a straw purchase, maybe if you want to use Second Amendment gun uh, gun law. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, so Goldman Sachs buys them from the federal government, and then the Federal Reserve buys them from them, pays a fee to Goldman Sachs, and off you go. So I mean, Wall Street is one of those big beneficiaries. Um, and I think along the lines of what Keith was saying, um, so much of what the inflation does, it, you know, it makes asset prices grow in value. So if you've got a portfolio, if you're sitting on a big portfolio or so forth, you, you're going to be buffered somewhat from that, you know, by owning equities and that kind of thing. Um, but again, a day-to-day person, it's it hits them harder. They they can't defer purchases, you know. They, a much greater sum of, for example, he's the $1,000 a month, maybe they've got to work with, whatever that is. Um, a much greater proportion of that is kind of mandatory spending. I've got to go out and buy what's out there right now. And so it definitely affects them harder, harder than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know we touched on the, we touched on the baby food thing or the baby formula uh, shortage. And I know, I know, Keith, you talked, I think you shared a recent article about the FDA's involvement. Um, I, I want to point out also, you know, you mentioned monopolies. One of the reasons that we have a, a, a I think there's a, uh, what is it, triopoly? I think there's three major manufacturers of, of baby formula in the U.S. And the reason that there's only three and there's not a, 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 an entire a myriad of, of baby formula manufacturers, one of the main reasons is because of the WIC program, which is the major buyer, uh, and they buy a tremendous amount, and they, they select just like, a, just like the DOD selects Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and whatever. Like They select these few. They get the lion's share of, um, of the business, and it makes it difficult in addition to the regulations, which are an impi- uh, impediment to starting – your own baby formula company. Uh, you've also got these uh, this kind of pseudo triopoly <laughs> because of the government's involvement in all this. So this isn't a natural market response. Like this isn't a market failure of baby formula by any means. Certainly. All right, let's 
Let's go to our second questions. <laughs> Brian, what news story should we be paying attention to that no one's noticed or few people well, noticed? If you ask a journalist that, they're going to tell it's a story they wrote. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, go ahead. What, yeah, what story? So, yeah. No, it's a story I published last week at starkrealities.substack.com, um, which is about the uh, recent declassification of the past several months of a great deal more of documents relating to the uh, investigation of Saudi government links to the 9-11 attacks, um, something like 4,000 pages. And I poured through most of them evening after evening <laughs> uh, studying those. Um, and at, at the time of the 9-11 commission, um, there were suspicions about maybe some Saudi government people having some connections to the 9-11 plot. Um, but uh, there you go. The uh, But then the commission kind of reached its conclusion that the uh, that they found no evidence that Saudi government the Saudi government or senior Saudi government officials you know facilitated the attacks but what this de declassification shows is after the 9/11 commission the investigations continued and uh, uh, the case is just growing ever stronger that Saudi government officials you know have their fingerprints on this and help facilitate um, the, the hijackers in the United States. I'm speaking specifically about um, uh, people in the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C. and the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles, as well as a uh, man named Omar Bayoumi, Al Bayoumi, who was a, uh, he, he lived in uh, San Diego. And this is kind of at the center of this uh, story and how it really hit the FBI's radar, uh, this whole dynamic. Here's a guy living, man living in southern in uh, San Diego. He had a no-show job for a Saudi aviation company. So really, he literally did not have to go to work and was receiving a salary from the Saudi aviation company. Um, he uh, one day he just happens to go up to uh, Los Angeles in uh, early 2000, ostensibly to renew his visa at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. From the Saudi consulate, he just happens to go to a uh, nearby Mediterranean restaurant where he just happens to run into uh, the first two hijackers to arrive in the United States, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi. Um, he strikes up a conversation and just out of generosity, he invites them to move to San Diego and uh, takes them under his wing, helps facilitate the first payment on their uh, rental and guarantee thing, his uh, deposit and so forth, um, and uh, assign other people to shuttle them around town and so forth. He was at the... Uh, you know, center of a lot of focus. And at the time, the 9-11 Commission, they concluded we don't think necessarily he was a Saudi intelligence asset. Now, the, these papers that have been released definitively say that he was and that he was uh, giving information back and forth with uh, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, uh, Prince Bandar. He was a very, very close friend of uh, George W. Bush. Um, some people have thought, well, was he acting as gathering intelligence on the hijackers? Is there a Maybe that's a beneficial explanation. I can't be certain either. That this route, this these documents found that uh, after uh, he he would go on to fund a uh, Ansar Al Islam, which is a uh, Salafist organization uh, with Kurdish roots that is uh, you know it's a designated terrorist group and so forth. Um, but that so that's that thread. But then in addition, you've got uh, Saudi officials in these documents. Uh, uh, in the consulate and in uh, the Saudi embassy uh, who were uh, 
known to be extremists and uh, Salafists and supporting, you know, all kinds of extreme uh, beliefs and sp spreading that th throughout the United States. Um, so a cast of characters has emerged, including a, a mid-level uh, person at the Saudi embassy in Washington. Um, that's you know, very troubling. And it's just example upon example, including a, a big flurry of phone calls amongst all these people right uh, like in the weeks just before this uh, hijackers arrived. And it kind of looked a lot like maybe people were, you know, getting ready to usher these people in. Because you have to understand these first two to arrive, especially, and it's true generally, but especially these two, basically spoke no English. I mean, you suddenly land in the United States, Los Angeles, you don't have a job or anything, and you've, you know, an apartment, you don't, can't, they, can't, they couldn't read street signs. I mean, it was just, obviously, you're going to need somebody to help uh, uh, get you oriented. So, um, all of this is not to say that the Saudi government set out necessarily to, you know, the king probably didn't say, let's knock down the World Trade Center. Um, but the Saudi royal family, you know, which Bondar is a part, um, they've long had this uh, devil's bargain with the, the Salafists um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, specifically, that bargain is, uh, you know, you can, we're going to give you money and we're going to facilitate your activities abroad, you know, <laughs> um, yep. but just don't do it at home in Saudi Arabia. Um, and so there's that dynamic that's been always going on in the background. Um, when uh, WikiLeaks exposed those uh, State Department cables, you saw correspondence with Hillary Clinton saying, you know, we know that Saudi Arabia is funding ISIS in uh, in uh, Syria and in Iraq. So um, we talk about an underreported story. I mean, let's just let's just pretend for a moment that we weren't talking about the Saudi embassy and the Saudi consulate. Imagine if this set of facts were associated with, let's say, Iran or Russia. I mean, it wouldn't all be. We wouldn't all be. This, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be. It would be this underreported story that some independent journalists are nibbling around the edges of and so forth. Um, Yahoo News, I give them credit. They've, they've reported on some of this stuff. Um, but, I mean, you want to talk about uh, one of the most momentous events of our time. And you've got, you know, maybe the best interpretation is that, oh, there are some rogue people in the embassy system, you know, that were, that were helping to facilitate. Well, that's a, that's a pretty important fact that you know you think the american people would know and that you think it'd be really interesting if nothing else for people for uh for news agencies to report but we don't you know it's buried just like the the 28 pages you know if you ever heard of the 28 pages uh from a uh congressional intelligence inquiry that came right before the 9-11 commission the bush administration tucked them away classified them all because they it was a chapter of that report focusing on these uh investigative elites pointing towards saudi arabia so at the same time, they were hiding that from the American people. You know, they were uh, fostering this false belief that uh, Saddam Hussein had links to 9/11. So it just kind of goes to show you the whole big picture and how how disturbing it really is. Can you uh, can you describe for people? Well, I guess. Let's step back. One thing that you can do without knowing a lot of details is just look at 9/11 and the response to 9/11 and say, well, who benefited? Um, how did Saudi Arabia make out? Did it, did this hurt them significantly or no? No, I don't think it hurt them. I don't think it hurt them at all, really. I mean, it had some reputational things at first. You know, they did a big PR campaign after 9-11. 
um, to, to counteract that, um, you know, because, uh, you know, I think 15 of the 19 hijackers were, were Saudis. Yep. And every article cites that statistic, but the, the case about Saudi Arabia would be just as strong if they were all from Ireland or Tanzania. It's not about the identity of the hijackers whatsoever, you know, and then there is an enormous civil suit. Uh, that's grinding its way through the legal system right now, pitting uh, 9-11 families and survivors and insurers against uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in a civil liability action. That case is not built on the, the nationalities of the hijackers whatsoever. It's built on all, you know, the, all the stuff I just was describing, uh, the, the uh, Saudi government connections and more. I mean... I might not have... I just... I don't know if I got I was you. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I wasn't sure if I answered your question because I know I got off onto a. Uh... No, I I think so, but I mean I, I look I just finished reading um, enough already Scott Horton's yeah uh, book about the war on terror and um, and you know one thing that that strikes me is the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia and the um. The uncanny way in which we seem to just always be on their side. Can you talk about why that is and what relationship the the Saudi Arabian royalty seem to have with American elite such that they never are on – everyone else is both on our good side and bad side at some point. We're either funding them or killing them depending on what the CIA is up to at the moment. But Saudi Arabia, we're always in tight with Saudi Arabian royalty. Right. You're right. Um, and one of the greatest examples of that is, uh, in terms of no matter what, it just always works out that no matter who comes in as the president, right. Over and over. Um, yes. I think a great example of that is, uh, Donald Trump. Um, I used to run, uh, I, I launched an organization or website called 28 pages.org back in 2014 to help push for the declassification of the pages. So 2016 Trump's running for president and he was, uh, lambasting, He's on the, on the stage. He's uh, lambasting uh, George W. Bush for invading Iraq. He goes, we shouldn't have invaded Iraq. They had nothing to do with 9-11. There's some secret papers, and we might find out that uh, Saudi Arabia knocked the towers down. That's him up on a stage, right? So at the time, you can imagine I was enthused about the publicity. If only, But he didn't say 20 pages. So that was really frustrating. He just said some secret <laughs> papers. It's like, um, But... Uh, so that, that was a pretty big thing to say in public, right? Fast forward, right? Now he's inaugurated. It's a long-held tradition that the American president's first state visit abroad is to either Mexico or Canada, our immediate neighbors. Trump throwing out tradition, which I'm not big on traditions, but who, who but of that nature. But who who is who's the honor with the first state visit? Saudi Arabia. I mean, it was <laughs> six months removed from saying, yeah, you might find out Saudi Arabia knocked those towers down. Um it's, yeah, it's this entrenched power relationship going all the way back to uh, FDR in the, the 19, I guess, 30s, or I guess the 40s, um, where there was just this agreement that there would be this uh, U.S. guarantee of Saudi security in exchange for this, you know, flow of oil. And, and it just keeps being honored administration after administration, no matter what, and it, regardless of our decreasing dependency on imports. Um and there's kind of a new dynamic that goes beyond oil, which is the uh, uh, weapons. 
Saudi Arabia is just an enormous consumer of, of Lockheed Martin and uh, Raytheon and all these major uh, government contractors. So it's it's kind of a, a that goes into it too. And really, what you've got is a uh, an example of what a phrase I learned from a Ron Paul book, which is the tyranny of the status quo, which is. Hmm. The fact that, you know, given any circumstance or set of circumstances you're talking about, there's some group that benefits enormously from it staying that way. And for a lot of other people, maybe it's not on their radar. And so the status quo is this giant arms trade. Um, and so you've got all that money coming uh, to those defense contractors. They turn, you know, there's a lot of people who have a great interest in not rocking that relationship. And it's them. And then it, they reinforce that because these uh, defense contractors turn, contractors turn around and they're some of the principal funders of the uh, foreign policy think tanks, like the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, which is mm -hmm. this esteemed you know, think tank. But when it, the Gulf states you know, fund it quite a bit. And so uh, and it just they just reinforce. And if you read their stuff, sometimes you're just astonished. It just looks like it was written by uh, a Saudi you know, PR person, which I guess in effect it was <laughs> given the, the funding. Um, so it's, it's just that it's that entrenched relationship of people who have an interest in keeping that flow going. Um, and, you know, they're viewed as an ally in the war on terror. And it's like this, when they're the principal funder of, you know, of this philosophy and the extremism that's out there. And even if it's, a, if, you know, a, apart from extremist groups and terrorist groups, you've got the, um, worldwide uh, spreading of just the philosophy of Salafism and Wahhabism um, uh, that just kind of sets the seeds for that to, to take root and become uh, you know, extremism or terrorism at some point. So those are some of the dynamics that, that keep that, keep us on that treadmill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith, do you have any, uh, you have any comments on Saudi Arabia before we move on to the next topic? I don't want to lock you out. You know what? I have not uh, done enough research. Very uh, interesting stuff, though. Yeah, I think many people haven't because it's uh, it feels so far removed and it's it's this potential web of 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 corruption that's really hard to untangle as well. It's it's a, it's quite a beast. But um yeah, I, go check it out at uh, Stark Stark Realities. <laughs> um, okay, so Keith, why don't you tell us what news story do you think we should be paying attention to, other than Brian's story uh, that we haven't been. What, what comes in a second? <laughs> uh, I uh, just put a uh, another link in the, uh, the the chat here. This is the Donbass war. Many people will say, well, there is a problem with Russia and Ukraine. Started uh, February 22nd of this year when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine after recognizing the independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. The problem is that people do not mention the fact that uh, there has been a war going on in eastern Ukraine ever since there was a U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Basically, the president, who was democratically elected, if you will, Viktor Yanukovych, was heavily represented in the eastern part of Ukraine, where there are a lot of Russian separatists. So when this coup took place, referred to as the Euro-Maiden protest, Euro-Maidan, 
gosh, I, uh, I've only seen the my word Don. written. Yeah. It's, it's my, my Don. Don. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was gonna, I, I don't think I've ever heard the word said. Um, uh, during those protests, the reason we know that it was heavily supported by the United States is Amy Klobuchar, Lindsey Graham, and John McCain went over there in person to meet with these Ukrainian fighters and say that Ukraine, this is your moment. And Lindsey Graham said in a uh, private meeting with him, he said, um, we are going to go back to Washington to make the case against Russia. Adam Schiff, just to show you that this is bipartisan, as most criminal activity is among the state. Uh, Adam Schiff says, uh, we arm Ukraine so they can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. After the fake Russiagate scam of 2016, where Hillary Clinton said 17 agencies have confirmed uh, Russian interference into our sacred election. Turns out that was a lie. Um, the uh, co correction was made June 29th, 2017 by the New York Times. The story was uh, totally fake. The 17 agencies never said it. And in that year, the agencies didn't come out and say, you know what? Uh, no, we didn't find that. So let's not uh, provoke a uh, conflict with a nuclear power. So the intelligence agencies are also just criminal organizations. And then in 2020, Joe Biden gets on the presidential stage and says, I have 50 intelligence officers that have signed a letter saying what he's referring to, the Hunter Biden laptop, is Russian disinformation. This, of yep. course, was uh, also uh, t turned out to be fake. The uh, New York Times uh, didn't actually issue a correction. They uh, just said recently, like uh, well, well, within the last month, that, well, uh, these emails were gathered from uh, people who confirmed, uh, sent emails from what was found on Hunter Biden's laptop. So uh, Russiagate 1.0 and 2.0 were totally fake. Uh, that is uh, another uh, example we have of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, trying to uh, provoke a war with them. Also, you have Victoria Nuland, who was assistant secretary to Eastern European Affairs. She's on the phone with a guy named Jeffrey. Gosh, I forget his last name. It's commonly referred to as the F the EU phone call, where Victoria yeah. Nuland is was it Pratt? Jeffrey Pratt. Yeah, where yeah. they're discussing who's going to enter the new government. And those people later uh, have high government officials yeah, uh, displaying. Yes, yeah, that that's what it is. <laughs> um, and so, more or less, they're the ones choosing who the new regime is uh, going to uh, to consist of. She's also uh, caught on uh, camera. This was popularized by Oliver Stone's documentary, where she says, "We've spent billions of dollars since the '90s promoting democracy in Ukraine." Of course, democracy just means <laughs> our people ruling and not theirs. Our Yanukovych, yep. like I said, Yanukovych uh, was uh, very uh, sympathetic to Russia, which is not terrible. I mean, as much as I don't like, uh, you know, the, uh, as much as I hate Justin Trudeau, I wouldn't necessarily want, you know, three people on the same continent that hated each other. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I, I could be that might uh, create friction among the ruling class and be inconvenient for them. So maybe I'm wrong. But either way, they overthrew uh, democratically elected Yanukovych. The people in the East said, well, what the heck? We're so we're always told that this democracy thing is something we got to participate in. Our guy wins. And now we're totally screwed. Well, uh, we're not going to uh, recognize this. So the people in the eastern region did not necessarily recognize the new regime as legitimate. Just as if a bunch of Trump supporters overthrew Biden, I don't believe Democrats would say, well, look, uh, they reinstalled Trump, even though we elected Biden, 
in a totally legitimate election. Well, we got Trump. They'd be saying this is the biggest treason of all time. The one thing worse than January 6th and the nuking of Hiroshima. So, of course, they would uh, be saying the same thing that the people in the East are saying. This is a uh, quick introduction in this this, uh, excellent article by Robert E. Hamilton, a uh, colonel and Ph.D. associate professor of uh, Eurasian studies at the U.S. Army War College. The war in eastern Ukraine region, known as the Donbass, has killed over 13,000 people, displaced millions, and led to the worst rapture in relations between the Russian Federation and West since the end of the Cold War. Notice this was published October 24th of 2019, five years of war in the Donbass. So the reason this is so important is because in order for states to gain a lot of power, they have to have a Hitler. It has to be inherently good versus inherently bad. Are you with the people who want to wear masks and save us, or do you want to kill grandma? Are you with the heroic government of Zelensky, or are you for the evil psychopath started an unprovoked war, Vladimir Putin? Look, I'm, I'm happy to say Putin's just as bad as any uh, politician in general. The point is, without having an understanding of this issue, they're able to fabricate this narrative of inherently good versus inherently bad. Why would they do that? Well, in order to really motivate people to justify billions of dollars in support, there can't be any nuance. There can't be, well, you know, there's arguments on both sides. It has to be, nope, black and white. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Here's where we stand. Once you know the Zelensky government has killed roughly the same number of civilians as the Russian government, it has to be more uh, because that war lasted for so long. It has to be more even though uh, Russia's invasion was uh, bigger and more aggressive and it's only gone on two months. The point is is that this ushers in a level of nuance, a level of discussion that takes both sides into account. that's why this is so important. They uh, intentionally say this is bad because Vladimir Putin's doing it. The reality is it's not Ukraine versus Russia. It's, again, people who engage in voluntarism versus people who engage in violence. There's plenty of innocent Russians. There's plenty of innocent Ukrainians. Both sides have engaged in slavery called conscription, one of the most evil versions of it. Ukraine's not letting any men between 18 and 61 Uh, outside of the borders. They're enslaving them to fight against the Russians, even if they'd rather have a Russian government. Just as including, by the way, trans women. Just to throw uh, that out there. I know. I might have to start identifying as a a woman if I want to get out of a third world war. Um, The problem is that they always say, well, Russia's going to come in here and they don't necessarily just want to kill people for the sake of killing. Their goal is to occupy Kiev and then control the government or have a sympathetic one. Well, if that's going to violate my rights, surely forcing me to get my limbs blown off in a fight with them is a bigger violation of my rights. So again, this nuance is vitally important. They never mention the fact that this war had been going on for eight previous years as a causal result of NATO, uh, U.S. and Turkey uh, sending weapons, making Ukraine almost a NATO member uh, uh, w- without uh, being it, without it being totally official uh, in name. But just as Kennedy would not let the Soviets have nukes in Cuba, it's unlikely that anyone, not even just Putin alone, anyone uh, in Russia, even Yeltsin, even uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, I can't imagine the people 
who uh, were so vocal against Poland, Hungary, and Romania joining NATO would just be like, well, it's okay if Ukraine and Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania join. Now that's okay. Anyone in Russia would have this response. The U.S. knows it, and uh, Antony Blinken and Joe Biden are intentionally not engaging in any diplomatic efforts with Sergei Lavrov or Vladimir Putin because they want this war to happen. They want to continue the boogeyman that they've uh, started working on in 2016 with the fake Russiagate hoaxes. Uh, that is uh, what I think is uh, one of the biggest stories that could lead to nuclear war and mass murder. Um, certainly a worse form of exploitation than offering to hire someone, which Bernie Sanders tells me is so inherently evil. Uh, mm. This might be uh, one of the biggest tragedies. It very well could be. It's I, I can't think of a better analogy than Russian roulette. Either nothing happens or something really, really, really bad happens. So maybe there's not going to be a nuclear exchange. I pray to Jesus there isn't. But the fact that this risk is possible, we literally have Joe Biden and Antony Blinken and Putin and Zelensky all collectively playing Russian roulette with millions of lives. This is the nature of government, and this is why you have to embrace the philosophy of freedom because the state is the health of war. The bigger the government, the more taxes that they have, the more they can draft people, the more they have the ability to start wars and kill innocent people. Here, here. Uh, so one thing that that I wonder about is – so, you know, this war in Donbass, I mean, the Ukrainian government under Zelensky and previous leaders, uh, I think, was it Yushchenko who got in after Yanukovych? Anyway, uh, they they were, they've been, been attacking people in the Donbass, the Donbass separatists since, you know, like you said, shortly after 2014. Um, the question that I have as an American is, why are we so... Why is why are we so interested in covering this up? We being the government. Why is our government and our leaders so interested in not letting us know a their involvement in 2014, b uh, what's like making it this black and white thing? Um, and it, you know, when you throw Hunter Biden's Burisma uh, <laughs> board membership on top of this, and you throw on top of it the the fact that in Maidan, it seems like the CIA may have been involved. I mean, not that they don't have a history of being involved in in uh, overthrowing governments. What's going on here? From a like, what's in a, what? What the lizard people that are in Washington? What's in their best interest? Why are they doing this? What do they get out of this? I, th I think a big part of it is getting, echoing that Saudi Arabia discussion. A big part of it is the. Uh, uh, interest of the uh, arms manufacturers. I mean, the, the military and the military industrial complex broadly, they, they always need the current boogeyman, right? And um, it, we, you see it's pivoting it from the Soviet Union and then, oh, now we've got a war on terror to fight. We're gonna go gangbusters with that. People start to get fatigued with that. And then suddenly Russia emerges as this enormous menace to the world that we've got to, to uh, counter. We've got to build up our hollowed out military. They're always calling it hollowed out, even though the spending just, just leapfrogs. And the, the Pentagon asks for so much money and then Congress says, no, we give more than that. Um, that's a big part of it. I mean, this, this crisis traces back to uh, heavily to NATO expansion. Um, and NATO shouldn't exist anymore. 
I mean, the, right. the end of the Cold War, I mean, NATO was organized as a, you know, as an alliance against the Soviet empire and the Warsaw Pact, right? I mean, with the, with the wall coming down and the end of that empire, that should have signaled that, well, I'm glad that's over. Uh, but you've got all these entrenched bureaucracies and interests who just want to keep it going. I mean, if you're in charge of NATO, you want NATO to keep going. If you work there, um, if, you're, if you're arming it, um, you want it to keep going. And, um, you know, assurances were given to, uh, uh, I guess, Gorbachev at the time, right? Assurances were given to Russian leaders at the time of German reunification. Um, you know, there were senior people telling uh, the Russians, not one inch further eastward uh, for NATO expansion if these two countries unite. Now, that was not in the form of a treaty, right? So shame on the Russians for not getting it. <laughs> And writing, but they were given multiple assurances. Hey, you know, we're not going to do that. Well, then, uh, you know, Clinton, Bill Clinton, um, famously succumbed to all these pressures to, hey, let I'll make part of my legacy expanding NATO. Right? I mean, pe people want to do things like that. Um, plus, the all the interests that were pushing him on to do that. Um, I, I, there's a great line in a, a New York Times article, and it starts out: "So and so by day is." Uh, he had some senior position, I think it was at Northrop Grumman. And by night, he's chairman of the NATO expansion organization. <laughs> I mean, literally. Yes. Um, yes. And um, so those assurances were given. And then, you know, it's interesting to watch the, the way this has evolved because, I mean, we keep all, I think, using the same analogy, analogy as we talk about this type of thing. Imagine if the Soviet Union collapses, the Cold War is over, and then um, the Warsaw Pact says, hey, we're making overtures to Mexico to join the Warsaw Pact. We'd be like, <laughs> you know, people, from our perspective, we'd just wonder, well, what is that all about? You know, um, right. and so we've got to turn that map around and look at it from the other person's perspective. And uh, once the expansion started, you know, it was kind of uh, un unhappily tolerated by Russia. But then... Um, there came a meeting of the United Nations where it was, uh, excuse me, of NATO, where it was discussed um, uh, expansion to Ukraine. And uh, they, they stopped short of, ex of uh, inviting Ukraine in, but they did make this statement that said, Ukraine will become a member of NATO. They just threw it out there that, you know, it's just a matter of time. And at the time, uh, there's a, 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 a declassified cable uh and there's an article I have on this topic about uh, at Stark Realities, um, but uh, it's, you can get, read the quote and read the cable yourself. But the warning went up: Hey, this is a red line for Russia. Ukraine is, you know, it's we're going too far if we if we push this. It's going to result in uh, reactions by uh, by the Russians that we're not going to like, you know, because they're going to feel like this is too much of a threat. Um, it's also important to note that at the time of uh, that Clinton NATO expansion, you had a whole number of foreign policy luminaries, including George Kennan, you know, the father of the doctrine of containment of the Cold War, saying, do not expand NATO eastward. You know, do not do that. So and, and, and the list of people who are signed on to this letter are some of the biggest hawks in the foreign policy establishment. So even they were saying this is uh, not a wise thing to do. And so, and at the time, they... They were assuring Russia, hey, our NATO expansion isn't about you, Russia. Hey, don't worry about it. You know, we're just putting together this this group that's, you know, common values and that type of thing. Um, what's interesting is see the way that it's evolved now, because they said, oh, it's not about Russia. We're not threatening Russia. 
Well, now we get to this point where Russia reacts, and now it's see. This is why we needed to expand NATO eastward. <laughs> right. you know, it's and now and now look what's happened. And, and keep in mind, every time you expand NATO, what happens? Somebody's got to get rid of their AK-47s and get M4s. Somebody's got to get rid of their MIGs and buy the the uh, NATO aircraft. It's every every expansion triggers that. So it's it, it's an expansion responsibilities and power for NATO itself, and all these bureaucrats are involved in that. It's a whole new customer list, you know, for the uh, defense manufacturers and campaign contributions to their senators. You know, it's that whole racket yep. going on. Um, and so that they, that's kind of where we're at today. Didn't that, didn't Russia at one point say, "Hey, you know, we could join NATO"? NATO. Like when when this I I forget who it was that floated that idea, and we just kind of laughed that laughed it off. Like you know, it's, it it's, was Vladimir Putin to was it Putin? Uh, to Bill Clinton in 1999, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Clinton just laughed it off. Yeah. Oh, he, he said that. Uh, I, I mean that that would take away such a valuable uh, potential enemy. the The goal is to sort of bring them to their knees, not form an alliance with them. So no, that uh, that that would be all liability, uh, no benefit. And it was Secretary of State James Baker that made the promise to Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not uh, expand. They could have not vilified Putin and not driven in uh, him into the arms of Beijing if they wanted to, but. They uh, just took advantage, just like um, the uh, Allied uh, powers did or um, Britain, America, and France did to Germany after the First World War. They said, look at this country. We could do anything with these people. And it led to to the uh, rise of a uh, violent nationalist just as they uh, saw Russia and said, look, they just lost the Cold War. We could do anything with these people. Uh, Well, the uh, nationalist impulse then, uh, then arose again. And God, I hope it'll uh, end more peacefully this time. But yeah, uh, all of that's correct. And the document you're citing, of course, is William Burns, the current CIA director, who I guess is not that interested in getting in front of a microphone and telling people, um, hey, I saw this in 08. So this means we know the cause of the war, the cause, you know, the thing that actually matters. Uh, I, I, I don't care what causes cancer. The point is we have it and let's just deal with it. Really? I mean, uh, I'm bleeding, and I don't know if it's the shanking myself every day that is causing the blood. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Don't worry about the past. Just get some band-aids. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So, yeah, uh, this this is just terrible, the result of statism again. Yeah. And now you've got two new countries talking about joining, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Finland. Finland and and, and, uh, is it uh, Norway? Norway, Sweden. No, who else? I, I Sweden. Think Norway, That's who it was. I think fin- Finland and Sweden for a while. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fin- so it was Finland and Sweden. You're like right. a self-perpetuating machine, you know. Yeah, yep. Really. It's, yeah. it's out well because all that it helps justify its existence by the trouble it's causing itself. You know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the term is self-licking ice cream. Uh, ice yeah. cream cone. Um, <laughs> It's it's basically a larger version of FBI's uh, the FBI's plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. They 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 like. <laughs> I keep suspicious. forgetting about that. I remember hearing they. they hey, you really need plot. us. There's this plot going on. It's like yeah. I well, it's uh, it's every crystal meth addict who is uh, really depressed after they're coming down from crystal meth. 
So you know what they need? Some more <laughs> crystal meth. Crystal that's meth, that, yes. that's the level the federal government operates. That uh, we need them to be so big to protect us, and they operate at the level of the average crystal meth addict. I'm looking up a great quote that in my article, not from me, I'm quoting somebody else. NATO exists to manage the risks created by its existence. That's funny. Oh. <laughs> that nicely sums up the circular nature of NATO. That, yes. That's a uh, p- perfect way to uh, end this. I uh, I actually got to take off, gentlemen. Uh, can we uh, No, I think out? it's a, it, it's a great way to end. Um, and But we can't close without you telling people how to follow you and where they can find you and then Brian as well. The libertarian uh, libertarianinstitute.org is the best place to find us. We have uh, thousands of articles, thousands of essays, tons of documents on things like Oklahoma City, things like Waco. We uh, archive old uh, articles from antiwar.com. We have thousands of free podcasts and videos. Use the search engine, type in your favorite topic. You'll find an unlimited amount of free, mostly ad-free uh, as well, uh, stuff that's in there. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, having me on Unsafe Space. Thank you, Keith. Take care. And Brian, Yes. Uh, you weren't going to share social media links, so if you want to tell us why. I, I find it to be a black hole, them. like a <laughs> memory hole almost. Um, like the worst thing I could do is tell people, hey, if you want to keep up with me, go to the Stark Realities Facebook page. Um, I'll, I'll just give you an anecdote. I have... Uh, like 4,200 followers of that page. Um, the last time I posted an article, just as my, my, I always post them anyway, but uh, Facebook presented, out of 4,200 people, Facebook presented that article to 67 Facebook <laughs> So, it, you know, so the worst thing I could do is tell so you- So it's useful. Yeah, so don't even, do not even try to find that page. And that's the beauty of the uh, Substack platform. Right. I mean, what attracted yep. to me and made me launch the Substack newsletter is the fact that it directly connects writers and readers. You don't have to rely on on Twitter or Twitter Jack or or uh, or Facebook uh, allow deciding what you can see and not see. You know, you, if you like the writer, their information, boom, when an article is posted, it goes straight to your inbox. Um, yep. And so you're bypassing that. So that's the beauty of it. Um, but yes. So if you're interested in seeing my writing, uh, go to Stark Realities plural starkrealities.substack.com and you can sign up you can cancel whenever you want to uh, it's all the content's free um and uh you know, if you want to become a support supporting subscriber that's great too but if you want to come along for the ride uh free uh absolutely happy to have you at starkrealities.substack.com cool well brian thank you very much for for joining today um this great conversation and uh hope to have you back appreciate it thanks so much for having me all right. Thanks, everyone, for watching. We will uh, – when do we see you next? Beverly's in chat. She can tell me. I think the next show is tomorrow, 451, but I could be wrong. Um, we're going to release an interview with Scott Horton this week, so you can see that. Um, and uh, I guess that's it. Have a good day, everyone, and uh, take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, 
and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons, Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>